0: So this morning we're looking at Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Matthew 9, 9 to 13. Now Ephesians 1, 15 to 23 tells us that that Christ is the head of the church, that we are the body of Christ, that he is the one that directs us, that, that leads us. It is his example that we strive to follow. This week our passage focuses on Christ's leading. And as is typical with with Jesus, he leads us places that are not necessarily comfortable. He takes us places so that his message might be proclaimed. His word might go forth and that all might hear it and be changed by that hearing. Matthew chapter 9 verses 9 to 13. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray you would speak through your word today, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. pray this in your name. Amen. So Jesus is, is walking down the street and he sees a tax collector and he says, hey, come follow me. And this is a big deal. This is a big deal because tax collectors, I mean, we may not be real fond of the IRS and having to pay taxes and, and whatnot in, in our day and age, you know, in our current context, that's not something that we necessarily enjoy, Right. But back in, in this day and age, it was a lot worse because they didn't really have oversight. They had to collect taxes and, and they gave those taxes to Rome. And, and so the tax collector's job was to was to collect your taxes. But but Rome didn't make sure that that you weren't collect, that they weren't collecting too much. And so a tax collector could say, yeah, you owe ten thousand dollars. Maybe actually only owed five. But there was nobody to come in and make sure that the tax collector was doing this honorably. There was no one to make sure that the tax collector was, was, was giving the right number. And so the tax collectors can then pocket that, that extra $5,000 that they just charged you. And you had no recourse but to pay that. Like that was what you had to do. And if you didn't, then the Roman soldiers would come on in and, and take it from you. Punish you in some way. And so we feel ripped off and we feel a little you know, frustrated when we have to pay taxes for, for certain things or whatever. They had much more reason to feel frustrated in, in the Old Testament or in the New Testament in this time. Tax collectors were not seen as good people. They were seen as thieves. Slimy, dirty little guys that are, that are taking what belongs to me. They're taking more. They're stealing from me. And there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing that I can do. There's no protection built in for me, the taxpayer. There's no protection built in for me. So they are seen as the scum of the earth. They're seen as the scum of the earth. And Jesus says, I'm going to come eat with you. I'm going to come hang out with you. Eating together is a big deal in this context. When you ate together, you were sharing life together. You ate with people that you wanted to spend time with. Eating with someone was saying to them, you are important to me. I wanna to get to know you. And I mean, we, we still carry that on a bit to this day, don't we? That's still something that, that we participate in. When you wanna to get to know someone, to, to start or build or maintain a relationship with them. Maybe you're going on a date Maybe it's related to business. Where do you go? What do you do? You go out for food, right? You go out you go for lunch or dinner. You get a coffee. Maybe you throw a movie in there or something. But typically there is, there's a meal included. We still get together to build relationship over food, to build relationship over drink, to spend time in each other's presence, getting to know each other, to invest in each other's lives. It's a common and important way that we build relationship. Back to our passage today, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now that is a loaded question. Why is your teacher investing in the lowlifes? Does he not realize who these people are? If he knew, and he's not a dumb man, so he must know, then how can he do this? How could he spend time investing in, building relationship with the tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the lowly, the used, the addicts, the unclean, the liars, the cheaters, the sinners? Why is your teacher building relationship with sinners? Jesus responds in verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus starts his response with a retort. He says, Who else would I spend my time with? I have come to help those in need. I have come to those that cannot help themselves. I have come for the rejected, the dejected, the depressed, the anxious. I have come for those that need my help. I have come for the sick. I have come for the sinner. How would, how would we respond? Maybe a better question is, are we in a situation that warrants the question? Are we eating with tax collectors and the sinners? Are we spending time building relationships with broken and needy people? People who act out their brokenness in ways that make us uncomfortable, that stretch us. It's kind of scary to think about doing that a little bit, right? I guess it's a little scary. <laughs> it's scary to think about building a relationship with people that act so differently from us, that live so differently from how we're comfortable living. I mean, what if, what if they affect us? What if by spending time with them, I begin to act more like them? What if I, what if I fall into pitfalls? What if I give in to the temptations that they provide or further, what if, what if spending time with them means that I condone their lifestyle? What if, what if they understand spending time with them is me saying it's okay to be an alcoholic? Or is me saying it's okay to be a degenerate gambler or to cheat on your wife or to do drugs or to be foul-mouthed or, you know, whatever. The list goes on. Isn't it better to just distance ourselves? Then we aren't tempted. Then, then we don't, or then they don't get the wrong idea, Right? I mean, do we struggle with these thoughts? Have we gone down this this path, this line of thinking? As Christians here in America, we've done a pretty good job at isolating ourselves from the outside world. We've set up a strong barrier of insulation between us and the sinners. and, And then we've lived inside our bubble of protection. I mean, we do it with our schools, with our entertainment, with our addresses. We barricade ourselves in the land of Christendom, protecting what is ours, like Noah in the ark, waiting for the floodwaters to recede. And for what is outside our safe zone to get what's coming to them. As long as it doesn't affect us, doesn't take us down as well. Now don't misunderstand the message here. I'm not saying that Christian schools are inherently bad. I'm not saying that we shouldn't watch Christian movies or listen to Christian music or read Christian books and blogs. Go for it. I'm not saying we shouldn't live in a neighborhood near our friends if we have the chance. I'm saying that Jesus doesn't want us to be investing in Christendom, in the Christian world and mindset, in order to insulate ourselves, in order to keep ourselves safe from relationship with those in the world, those who don't share our faith and so aren't living it out. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. God has come to be in relationship with sinners. And as we've been reading, Christ is the head, the church is the body, and so the body is to do what the head does, The head leads. The head directs. In this case, the head leads by example. God wants us to be in relationship with sinners. If we are insulating ourselves from the secular world, the world that does not know Christ, how will they get to know Him? If we let our fear of the temptations and our concern of others' thinking others thinking that we condone sinful lifestyles, prevent us from forming relationships with those outside the faith, how will they hear of the hope that they can have in Christ? If the Christians don't go, who will go? If the church will not go, are we acting like the body of Christ, called and empowered for the mission of Christ? No one is saying that there aren't dangers and we should be mindful and use wisdom when encountering them. Temptation. How did did Jesus send people out into the mission field? Luke chapter 10 verses 1 to 2. We read, After this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Two by two. Nobody's saying go alone. In fact, we're told the opposite go and bring a friend, bring accountability and encouragement in the form of a fellow believer, but go. But go. Build relationships with those who do not believe. Eat with the tax collectors and sinners. And through that relationship, preach the word that it might do its work. That they might enter into the kingdom of heaven. As we look back on Jesus' response to the Pharisees, it's interesting that he begins his retort with a comment on healthy and sick people. There's no doubt that the Pharisees saw themselves as the healthy people. And so I think it's fair to ask the question of us Who do we see ourselves as in this comment of Jesus? Who do we see ourselves as? We're not tax collectors. You know, we're not the, the scum of the earth, so we must be the healthy people, right? The irony. And Jesus' response to the Pharisees is that we are all the sick people. Us, the Pharisees, the tax collectors, all of us. Jesus says that he has not come to call the righteous, that they don't need him. But then we see that, that Paul writes in Romans 3.10, no one is righteous. No one is righteous, not one. There is no one Righteous. There is no one that does not need Jesus. And Jesus only leaves two options, righteous and sinners. And if no one is righteous, then man, we are all sinners. We're all lumped in with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the drug lords. And Jesus came to have relationship with us. To save us that we might have relationship with God and we see this even clearer in the homework that Jesus assigns verse 13 but go and learn what this means I desire mercy not sacrifice so Jesus starts off his response with a retort and then he continues his response by assigning homework Go find out what this means. Dig in a little bit. Go figure out what's going on when when, when the prophets say this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You know, I don't think they did. I'm pretty sure they didn't. Because a few chapters later in Matthew 12, verse 7, Jesus again tells the Pharisees, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice you would not have condemned the guiltless. So since he had to repeat it, I mean, I think it's pretty safe to assume that they did not not follow up. But we will. And man, I wish that they had, for this little nugget is such a blessing. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Is a reference to Isaiah 6.6, which is in turn a reference to Jeremiah 7.22 which is referencing this story in the book of Exodus. The word that is translated mercy here is the word "hesed," which means loving kindness, covenantal love, steadfast love. The Greek translation of the Old Testament that we know as the Septuagint translated this word into mercy, and, and that works. But it doesn't, it doesn't just stop there. This is the word that God uses when he is talking about how much he loves His people, it's a strong word in Hebrew. And it speaks of God's zealousness for his people and their covenantal love. And we see this in Isaiah. I mean, just looking at the book of Hosea, the whole book is about the prophet who God says, Hosea, I want you to go and marry this prostitute. And Hosea does it. And Hosea falls in love with Gomer. He falls in love with this prostitute brings her into his house, marries her, makes an honest woman of her, but how does Gomer respond? Ah, this life ain't for me. I'm not worthy of this. I, I don't feel like I can fit in here. I'm awkward. I, I don't like this. It's constraining to me. I need to be free. And so she leaves. And she goes back to her life of prostitution. And Hosea goes back to her. Says, I love you. Don't leave me. God calls Hosea to a life of an example of what it's like. He's, He uses Hosea's life as an example of the Israelites and their relationship with God where God is constantly calling out to them and saying, come back to me. I love you. And they come back and then they're like, I can't take this relationship. It's too close or too constraining or whatever and I've got to get out of it. My sin won't let me stay here. I have to go and they go. And God comes back and says, no, you are my people and I love you and I want you back. And so he pulls them back. Into that relationship. Calls them back into that relationship. And the cycle repeats. And Hosea 6.6 6 is like the culmination of this story. It's the central chapter of what we look Hosea 6 is the central chapter. And 6.6 6 talks about that. For when I brought you, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Hosea six six is referencing Jeremiah seven twenty two, and there we read: "For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices. I did not just give them rules to live by. I wanted them to be my people. I wanted to have relationship with them, and we know what happens, right? They walk away from God. We see it all through the Old Testament." The time of the judges. God didn't want them to have a king. And he wanted to be their king. Wanted to have relationship with his people. And they kept walking away. They kept disobeying. Following and worshipping other gods. And and so then God finally relented. And he said, alright, here's a king. You can have your king. Take your king. And he gave them kings. And what happened? Some kings were good. And led the people towards God. And others were bad and had no use for God. And eventually... Israel and Judah split up. And then sometime after that, they were conquered by the Babylonians. And then Israel was no more. They were just a remnant. A remnant that God would not let die. A remnant that God desperately wanted to have a relationship with. But God's desire for a relationship with his people didn't start with the exodus It didn't start with Hosea or the judges or the time of the kings. His desire for relationships started way back in Genesis, in the beginning, when he made us, when he crafted us in his own image and he breathed life into us. And then what did we do? We heard him. We sinned. We put up barriers. And so the rest of the Old Testament is a story of of God working for the good of His people. To bring us back into relationship with Him. And that mission culminates in Jesus. All of the Old Testament points to the cross. And everything that has happened after points back to the cross. God desiring relationship with His people. Look this up, Jesus said. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire a relationship with my people. I desire covenantal love from my people. As we look back on that statement today, it goes even deeper, doesn't it? God desired relationships so much that he became the sacrifice. He took our place on that cross, died our spiritual death, that we might have relationship with the Father. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We cannot forget or move past what Jesus has done for each of us as we move forward in what he has called us to. It is what enables us. It is what propels us forward in mission. As we read in John earlier today, when Jesus is recruiting his disciples, what is the effect? They spend time with him. They build relationship with him. They eat with him. And then that relationship causes them to go out and find others, family, friends, and introduce those family and friends to Jesus that they are might have relationship with him as well. In 2011, the band Casting Crowns released the song, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. The chorus of the song goes like this. Oh, Jesus, friend of sinners, open our eyes to the world at the end of our pointing fingers. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Help us reach with open hearts and open doors. O Jesus, friend of sinners, break our hearts for what breaks yours. The chorus does such a good job of laying out the missional intent of being friends of sinners. Let our hearts be led by mercy. Lead us to the relationship that you want us to build, O God, that we might be used by you in your mission and the bridge brings it home saying you love every lost cause you reach for the outcast for the leper and the lame they're the reason that you came lord i was that lost cause and i was that outcast but you died for sinners just like me a grateful leper at your feet Jesus came for the unrighteous. He came for the tax collectors and sinners. He came for you and he came for me. He came to have relationship with grateful lepers at the foot of the cross. Our relationship with God is the most important relationship that we have. The rest of our relationships flow out of that relationship. Our relationship with God informs, explains, speaks into the rest of our relationships. And he is the one that has done the work to allow our relationship with him to even exist. From before time began, he has been at work to have a relationship with you. Think about that. Rest in that. What a wonderful, amazing God we serve. Amen.